0: So Hebrews chapter eleven this morning. It's uh, page one seventy-five of the back part of your pew Bible if you need that there. Hebrews chapter eleven, a familiar passage, but uh, before we get there, I think it would be helpful for us to think about some of the songs that we were singing this morning, because as we sing through them, some of the phrases might sound strange to us. The tone of them might sound discouraging. That. People are in prison and people are being persecuted and people are dying, particularly in that song about faith of our fathers. Uh, We've heard a lot of predictions of uh, gloom or despair in the past six or eight months, right? And I just want to remind you, in the context of everything that's going on in our world, that that which destroys the world is not going to be a particular leader coming to power It's not going to be a particular disease, it's not going to be a particular war. It is going to be the coming together of all of the great threats and disasters and destruction that God has foretold in his word that are coming upon the earth for continued unbelief as an opportunity for God to demonstrate his great power and glory and as an opportunity for him to save his people with a mighty deliverance. And so in that context, we look at Hebrews chapter 11. Now, there's a lot of things going on in Hebrews chapter 11, and so perhaps this will serve to illustrate it. Suppose that you are a character in an adventure story. What always happens? There's always something coming through the forest, chasing after the heroes. It's about to get them. They come up. And they're on the edge of the cliff they're trapped they have nowhere to go what often happens next what often happens next is one of the characters or someone you can't see beyond the fog or the mist says jump or keep going you're like why there's a cliff we're going to fall off and die if we do that right if they listen to that voice what happens in any good adventure story The person says, you did the right thing, good job. Right? They're delivered. They make it safely to the next point in the journey. Their lives are spared. Right? We see elements of that in Hebrews chapter 11. Now certainly, Hebrews chapter 11 is far more real than any adventure story we might have read or watched, right? But we see elements of this going on. And I want to make clear, faith is more than just a leap. It's not a, certainly not a blind leap, right? There are people who say, well, just believe in God. It's sort of this hope for the best kind of thing. Uh, what was it, Pascal's Wager, where he said, well, if you choose to believe in God, and it was right, you're in a good place. And if you're wrong, then you've lived a decent life anyway. Faith is more than just playing the odds. I want to make that very clear. But there are parallels here to what I just described, the adventure story and what we see in Hebrews 11. Faith, this passage is saying to us, leads us to God's reward. How does it do that? What's involved in that? God's reward involves His approval. Good job. Well done. God's reward involves His dwelling, a city whose builder and maker is God. God's reward involves the promise of eternal life, the resurrection that was spoken of at the end of the passage that we just looked at together. Um, And all of these things are received when we, as Moses does in the middle of Hebrews 11, weigh the future as better than the now. Okay? And as the last part of Hebrews 11 will show us, the path looks different for each of us. Familiar with the end of the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 11, potentially? Some see amazing deliverance of God in their lifetimes. Some go through great suffering and die. But what is common between both those groups who are trusting in God? They receive their reward from God. So let's talk about how we actually receive God's reward by faith. Faith connects us to God's reward. We see this in verses 1 through 31. How does faith connect? do this how does it connect us to the reward that God has promised and the answer is because it secures God's approval we saw this in verse 2 for by it the men of old gained approval we see it also at the end of the chapter verse 39 all these having gained approval through their faith Faith is the basis by which God approves us. Now, those of you who say, well, but faith is God's work. It's not man's work and all those sorts of things. Your brain immediately starts going there, right? But what's emphasized here is that faith is the basis by which God approves them. There's a parallel passage to this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And it says that you are counted worthy of the kingdom of God because of your faith that continues through the sufferings that you're experiencing. And we say, well, wait a minute, Thessalonians, hang on. You guys are not accepted into God's kingdom by your efforts. But that's not what the passage says. What the passage says is, you are counted worthy to enter the kingdom because of your faith that continues through sufferings. So while it is true that God is the ultimate reason that they began to believe in the first place, And while it is true that they would not continue believing apart from God's sustaining power, the emphasis in that passage is on their faith that they need to keep believing in God, and they have. And the emphasis here in Hebrews 11 is, keep believing in God, and they did, right? So, faith connects us to God's reward by securing God's approval. What does this look like? God's approval comes when you trust in what you cannot see. We see this in verse 1. It's the assurance of what's hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If you see it, you don't need faith. If I say, I'm going to give you $1,000, what's your response? Your response says, show it to me and then I'll believe you, right? Well, that's not faith. That's prove it to me, right? So this is not show it to me and then I'll believe This is, God has said it, therefore I believe, even if I do not see it, or because I do not see it. What are some examples of these things that we believe? Well, verse 3. By faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God. That takes faith, right? Now, it's true that it also takes faith, and people don't want to admit this, to say that the world happened through a great explosion, implosion, however you want to look at it, and brought everything together through a series of, highly improbable but beneficial circumstances and after several billion years here we are today. Both of those require faith, right? So people who say, well, science versus faith, it's not science versus faith. Faith comes into it whatever your understanding of the origins of the universe are, but this verse says the origin of the universe is God made it. What, was, what is seen was made out of things, was not made out of things which are visible, So even creation itself is one of these things that is connected with God's approval, that is connected with faith in what God has done that we cannot see. Well, building off of that, what else does God do that we can't see? God holds it all together. What do scientists call that? They call it gravity. What's their explanation of it? These objects have this attractive force between each other. Why? No one knows. Now, I'm not saying that God is gravity, but I'm saying that God is the one who makes all things in the universe hold together. You and I, though we feel solid and look solid, are mostly empty space. God holds the entire universe together. He made it, and He sustains it. What else is involved in trusting what you can't see? Abel offered God a sacrifice. He couldn't see God, but God had said, here's the sort of sacrifice that I want. And Cain said, I'm going to do what I want to do and bring God this other sacrifice. But Abel offers God the right kind of sacrifice, trusting in what he could not see, God, and trusting in what might not have made sense, the sort of thing that God wanted him to bring as an offering. And it says, though he is dead, he still speaks. Why does it say, though he is dead? Well, because his brother killed him when he did what God wanted him to do. And even though that happened... We still remember the story of Cain and Abel, right? Just heard about it in Sunday school this morning, right? So, we still hear that story. He still speaks. His faith is still a witness and a testimony to us. So, God's approval comes when you trust in what you can't see. God's approval comes to those who seek God even when no one else does. Enoch was taken up so he would not see death. Noah, warned about things not yet seen, prepared an ark. So Enoch follows God, even when most of the people around him aren't. Noah follows God, and God says, build a giant boat in the middle of dry land when you've never seen a hurricane. And I'm going to send a flood that will engulf the whole world. And people around Noah probably thought that he was crazy, Right? But who survived the flood? Noah and his family. Because they had faith, did what God asked, and God took care of them. God's approval comes to those who seek God even when no one else does. Verse 6 is important to this whole theme of receiving God's reward. Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. So if we come to God and we're like, If you're out there, God, I don't know if you are or not. That's not the attitude that that verse describes. Must believe that he is. God, you are real. But not just that you are a God who's way out there, this blind force. I don't know if you've ever watched science fiction, but there's always like some powerful being out there that they discover or encounter or whatever, right? But what's always the question? Is it going to wipe us out or be our friend, right? But what does this say? The point of this is God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So if you come to God and you diligently seek Him, God is not going to vindictively and and angrily attack you and harm you and, and do bad to you, right? Okay? God's approval leads to a particular goal. It is... For someone to become an heir of righteousness. Look at the end of verse 7. Noah became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So, faith, God's approval, leads to the reward, the inheritance, the the righteous things that God has promised. Not only does faith secure God's approval, but faith is uh, shown by looking for God's dwelling. We see this in verses 8 through 12. Abraham, and you and I, Abraham's not the big deal to us that he was to the Jewish people to whom the author of Hebrews is writing, but for them, Abraham was the example, their hero, the one that they looked up to. What was true of Abraham? What was true of Abraham was, God came to him and says, you're living here, I'm going to take you somewhere else, leave and go to the place that I'm going to show you. What would your response be if God told you to do that? I'm not saying he does that today, but if he were to do that, what would your response be? We'd want to know, where am I going? How long will it take to get there? What is it going to cost? Will I ever see my family again? There would be all these questions that would come into our minds. Abraham, according to the testimony of Scripture, packed up everything and went. And God said, I'm going to show you where you're going to go. We Show faith by looking for God's dwelling, even if it is far from family and what you know, like for Abraham, even if it seems impossible. Why does it seem impossible? Well, I talk about in verses 11 and 12. God says, I'm going to take you to my dwelling and you're going to dwell there, you and your family. Well, what's true of Abraham? No kids. Seems impossible that he would have any. 75 years old. He waits another 20-some years. He's almost 100. Still no child, right? And so he's left his family that he knew. He has no children to call his own. But God has made this promise that I'm going to provide a dwelling for you, and you're going to dwell there with your descendants. Even if it means, furthermore, abandoning all safety in this life. Well, verse 14, for example. Those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. They confess that they are strangers and exiles in the earth. So people like Abraham, who follow after God, are not trusting in what this world has to offer in terms of security and inheritance and blessing, right? And it says if you had been mindful before you went out, you could have stayed here and had all these things, right? So here's the question for you and I. Do we still hang on to the things of this world as our hope for the future? Or are we only and exclusively looking for what God has promised. Now, I'm not saying we abandon the world. We have to live in it. I'm not saying we attack or fight against the world, because that's not what this is calling us to do either here. I'm just saying, where is your trust and where is your hope? So many times, people's hope is in how much money they have in their bank account, how their retirement looks, what sort of job that they have, what kind of house they have, cars they have, vacations they can take, all of these kinds of things, right? That's where people's hope is so many times in our world. Are you willing to let all of that go and say, my only hope is looking to what God has promised for me? That's a big step. That's something that seems... Humanly speaking, impossible, like having a child when you're 90 and 100. Like leaving all your family, never knowing if you'll ever see them again. What would make you abandon all of the certain things now, or seemingly certain things now, for something that's you can't see and you won't get now, you'll get in the future, from God that you can't see... What bridges the gap between those two perspectives is faith. And it's not blind faith either. It's not a a careless leap into something that you can't see. So go back to the story I was telling you. There's danger coming, you're at the edge of the cliff. What do you know for sure? You know for sure if you stay there, something bad's going to happen, right? So what about in this life? in this life what we want to pretend is that all of the amazing things that this world holds out to us will come true right you will be rich you will be happy you will have all your dreams fulfilled that's why so many people are are dancing in the streets right now because they're like all these things we work for will be fulfilled. And regardless of your feelings on politics, no person can fulfill all those things for you. And, as Jesus reminds us in the Gospels, all these things that we work so hard for brand new car, beautiful, shiny, smells nice goes fast lives in Michigan for 10 years and falls apart right this amazing house that you love that's beautiful that has all this space what happens it gets dirty it gets bugs in it it gets things break you have to fix them this job that you're like this is the best job ever and then that person becomes your boss. Or this person becomes your coworker, Or you get passed over for a promotion, however many times. This relationship that's going to satisfy every desire of your heart. What do you find out? That person's a sinner just like me. And as much as I sin and pretend like I don't, that person sins too. Whatever your dream is. Children, sports, whatever, achieving some particular goal, this amazing vacation, it will never satisfy you. And so if you trust in it, the equation starts to look less crazy, right? It's not give up certainty for uncertainty. It's give up false promises for true promises. So what these people did is they weighed dwelling on earth with dwelling with God. And they said, you know what? Dwelling with God is far better. That's what I'm going to throw my life into pursuing. Because what God has promised is better. What has God promised? For those who desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Verse 16, God is not ashamed to be called their God For He has prepared a city for them. So it's not, I'm jumping off a cliff into fire and water and disaster. It's I'm leaving the disaster behind for the glory of God's presence. So faith connects us to God's reward by securing God's approval. It's shown by the fact that we're looking for God's dwelling. And it's also connected with this idea of anticipating God's resurrection. That's the part of the scripture reading where we finished up this morning a little bit ago. Again, back to Abraham. God tested his faith. God said, Abraham, you have one son. Are you willing to give him up as an offering to me? Now, people will look at that story and they'll say, how could a God ask someone to do this? Well, for one thing, because God had a plan for how he was going to not have Abraham sacrifice his son... And for another, because of the picture that God is creating of what God does through Jesus, just like he does with Abraham and Isaac. So this idea of anticipating God's resurrection, God says, Abraham, go sacrifice your only son. How many of you would be willing to do that? You had one child, and you said, I'm going to give up that child because God asked me to. That would be an extraordinarily hard decision. I think most of us would say no. Why did Abraham say yes? Look at verse 19. He considered that God is able to raise even from the dead. We don't know all of what Abraham knew, but we know that he knew that God has the power to say, this person has died, I'm going to give them life once again. But what actually happens in that story... is that instead of sacrificing Isaac, God says, I've seen your faith, I've tested it, you have continued in that faith, now look over there. And he looks over there, and there's a sheep stuck in like a a bramble patch. And he says, go sacrifice that sheep. Well, that's a beautiful picture of what God does for us. The sacrifice of our children could never appease God in terms of dealing with our sin. But God has provided in our place, just like he provided in the place of Isaac the sheep, God has provided his own son in place of sinners. And so what that means is, God says, love your neighbor as yourself, and I don't do it. Sometimes I actually try to do harm to my neighbor. God says, love me with all of who you are, and I don't do it. I go do my own thing. I don't care about God. I ignore God. I, I don't live up to love God with all of who you are. So what's the penalty for me not loving my neighbor and not loving God? penalty is God's judgment. But in Jesus, whom God puts in my place, just like he put that sheep as sacrifice in the place of Isaac, God says, you can be forgiven of your sins, And because of what Jesus has done, I can view you as righteous and holy in my sight. And not just that, it doesn't stop there. Not just, you won't face my wrath, but I'm going to give you all these blessings. And what are those blessings? The things that this passage is talking about. God's reward, God's salvation, the resurrection. So what's the connection for us? The connection for us is this. Just like Abraham believed God is able to raise people from the dead... And verses 21 to 22. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Abraham said, God can raise my son from the dead if he calls me to sacrifice him. Jacob says, I believe in God. Joseph says, I believe that even though my people are going to be slaves in Egypt for four generations, they're going to return to the land that God has promised them, and they're going to take my bones and bury them in the land of promise, and someday I'll be raised. The passage doesn't say that, but I think if Abraham had that expectation, Joseph would have had that expectation as well. So anticipating God's resurrection. So when it comes to a test of faith like Abraham experienced, we tend to think there's only two options. We think the first option is, do what I want, and the second option is, do what God wants, and the first option is, do what I want and keep everything, and the second option is, do what God wants and lose everything. And we fail to consider that probably in every case, there is a third option. And what is the third option? The third option only exists if we take into account God's miraculous power we see this in questions of ethics, right? It's either lie to the people who are trying to harm a group of people or tell the truth and you and those people die, which fails to consider that there's at least a third option, which is tell the truth and God protects you. Or, as Hebrews will say later, tell the truth and you die and there's the promise of the resurrection and God is still with you in all of those circumstances. So there's a third option. And when we believe in God's miraculous power and connect with the resurrection, we see that. And when we have faith, that brings the resurrection closer to our sight. Joseph's standing here and saying, in generations from now, God's going to take you back to the land of Egypt, so I'm going to make you make a promise that you're going to fulfill then. How can he make a pro- ask them to make a promise that spans generations? Because from his perspective, those two things are not so far apart. We see God's approval, we look to God's dwelling, we anticipate God's resurrection, and we contrast the wisdom of now versus the foolishness of eternity. We see this in verses 23 through 31. The story of Moses. Moses' parents were told, like all the other parents of Israelites in the land of Egypt, kill your son because Pharaoh said so. If they got caught disobeying Pharaoh, what was a likely outcome? Their own death. But you know what they said? They said, that's not right for us to kill our children. So we're not going to do it. We're going to trust in God. That attitude continues with Moses. Moses could have said, in verse 24... I am the son of Pharaoh's daughter, so I am going to enjoy all that the life of an Egyptian prince has to offer. I'm going to dwell in the palace and enjoy riches and pleasure. And what does the next verse say? He chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God instead of enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward. So what lets you say, I'm going to give up life in the royal family for the life of a slave because they're my people? It is the recognition that God's reward is better than anything any human king or ruler or whatever group can offer you. Well, that continues through the things that God requires of the Israelites before they leave Egypt. Verse 28 says, By faith he, Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. What? Why would they do something that seems crazy, like God says, paint the blood of your sacrifice on your doorpost? Because God said it and because God spared them when he sends the angel of death to strike the firstborn of everyone in the land. Why would they walk through with walls of water on either side, a sea, knowing from a human perspective at any point that water could rush back over them because they had faith, and the water did rush back over them as soon as they get there, Pharaoh's army chases after, and they're all drowned, but God's people were spared. What enables them to do that? At least in that moment, they had faith in God and what he had promised. Then that continues when they get into the land of Canaan. They had to keep having faith because, verse 30, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. What's that talking about? They didn't go defeat Jericho with grappling hooks and siege weapons and all of those sorts of things and soldiers and armies. They defeated Jericho by walking around the city. Why? Because God wanted to show them it was his power, not theirs. Even one of the Gentiles, the next verse, verse 31, By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Here's someone who doesn't have much acquaintance with God but knows enough about him to know that he's been with his people so far. And she chooses to believe in him. Now, humanly speaking, it would have made much more sense for her to turn them in to the authorities of Jericho and receive a reward, and not trust that what they said was true, that God was going to come destroy the city. But she didn't do that. She believed them. She believed God. She received the reward of her life being spared, becoming part of the people of Israel, and ultimately becoming one of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, in the line of Jesus. We see that at the beginning of the book of Matthew. All of these people contrasted what seems like wisdom... Seizing something good now versus what seems like foolishness, waiting for something better later, and they receive the reward. So, you receive the reward by God's approval, you receive the reward looking to God's dwelling. You receive the reward anticipating God's resurrection. You receive the reward when you weigh what seems like something amazing now, but isn't really, against what seems like maybe I shouldn't wait for this, but is far better. So what's the path that gets there? Well, that's what the last part of the chapter is about. The path of faith looks different from person to person. Think back to what it said in chapter 10. We should hold firmly and without wavering. And then think about what the last few verses here say. Verse 32. What more shall I say? Time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. That's verses 32 through the first part of 35. That all sounds pretty good, right? You win. God delivers you. He does miracles. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go through the fiery furnace. Daniel goes through the lion's den. The armies that surround the city of Jerusalem are wiped out by a plague, and the commander goes home in defeat, and God delivers his people by mighty acts. You're like, that's what I want. Some will see amazing victories in this life. But some will also see great trouble in this life as we continue through the passage, verse 35, others were tortured, not accepting release, so they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. You know what is sorely lacking in modern day churches? An awareness that the people in the second part that I just read to you are just as much heroes of faith as the people in the first part. We might think, well, Joshua was amazing because he conquered Jericho. I would tell you John the Baptist was also a hero of the faith even though the wicked king Herod had his head cut off. Well, but David was a great hero of the faith because God gave him victory in all these battles, right? And God's people are also heroes of the faith if they trust in God and they never win anything. So here's the thing for us. You don't know which path God is going to call you to walk. I think from what we see in the Gospels, and what we see of Paul's experience, and what we see of Peter's description, I think if we had to say which is more likely, what's more likely is the second part of what I read. The persecution and the difficulty of following after Jesus. So the question for you and I is, are you only gonna follow jesus if things are really easy if you get everything you want if you see a great amazing miracle right here and right now are you still gonna follow jesus even if your life is harder because you trusted in him but what's true of both groups both groups are looking to god for the reward Now. What does this say in verses 39 to 40? All of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Wait a minute. I've just been saying you're going to receive the reward. Why does this verse say they did not receive what was promised? Why did it say earlier in the chapter, in verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises? Well, the answer is in verse 40. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. So we see again the theme of being made perfect. We see the theme of faith being strengthened. Here's what's true. There were people in the Old Testament who had an idea that Jesus was coming, but they didn't know a lot of the details. But they still trusted in God. With they, with us, who now now know all of these things about Jesus and have seen all of these things that God has done, together all of us will be made perfect as we together receive the reward that God has promised. Was that unfair to them? It was God's purpose and God's plan for their life. And God receives glory by all of us together being included in receiving the reward that He's promised. So again, the question for us is, Do we feel like God is doing us wrong and we're missing out on his promises if we don't immediately see what he's promised in the course of our life? Or are we identifying even more closely with those who have gone before us if we say they believed God and they followed God even though they didn't see the full realization of all of God's promises in their life? Is Jesus coming back today? Is he coming back next week? Is he coming back in five years? I don't know. I can't tell you that. What I can tell you is he is coming back. So whether you are those who see mighty miracles, whether you are those who go through great persecution, or some of both in your life, whether you are one of those who looks forward to the fulfillment of those promises or sees the fulfillment of the promises in your lifetime, what's true in all those cases If you are trusting in Jesus, by faith you will receive God's reward. He has not forgotten about you. He is not going to fail to keep his promises. So you persist in faith that you might receive that reward. Whatever your path, life or death, easy or hard, if it is one of faith, God will reward you. Let's pray. God, you are our Father. You have made good promises to us. We ask that you would give us the faith to believe them and to live according to them and to be sustained in a life of faith as we look for that day when faith will be made sight, when Jesus will come and make all of your promises true and we will spend eternity with you. Help us to see the how much better that is than anything that we can see in this life. And there are many good things in this life, but all of them fade in comparison to what you have promised us in Jesus. Help us to see that and live by it. In Christ's name, amen.